This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. My name is Paul Hickey. I'm the anesthesiologist-in-chief at Boston Children's Hospital and professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Here on the World Shared Practices Forum today, uh, we'd like to talk about uh, the potential toxic effects of anesthetics on the developing brain uh, in children from the age of birth to about the age of three, uh, discuss some of the recent uh, evidence that's been coming forth uh, for or against the potential for this neurotoxic effect. I have with me here today Mary Ellen McCann, who's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and one of the senior faculty in the Department of Anesthesia. She's a principal investigator on the GASS study, G-A-S-S, which is an international uh, study, multi-center study, uh, looking at the clinical effects of general anesthesia versus spinal anesthesia in the first three years of life and examining its effects on neurocognitive development over the next five years. So Mary Ellen is, a, uh, is an authority on the current status of our knowledge about uh, the, the potential um, neurotoxic effects of general anesthetics. Uh, so uh, Mary Ellen, uh, what's your general view of whether this is something that pediatricians, uh, pediatric intensivists, and parents need to worry about. Okay, so I'd like to start off and talk about some of the human studies that are out there and, um, and, and just give an overview of, of, of the available literature so that some of the clinicians could uh, use this information. So I'd like to start with um, how do human studies reveal about the effects of general anesthesia on neurocognition? So, so far, the only published studies out there have been retrospective studies. They're epidemiologic or cohort studies. Uh, one of the most quoted studies was written by Robert Wilder out in Minnesota, which involved a database of over 5,000 children born in Olmsted County, Minnesota um, from uh, 1976 to 1982. And this study determined that children who were uh, had received two or more anesthetics in the first four years of life, had roughly double the rate of cumulative school difficulties compared with children who had no anesthetic exposures. So it's kind of uh, a little bit of a scary study, I think. In this study, there was no increase in learning problems in children who had a single anesthetic exposure. Okay, um, Caleb Ng, also of Columbia University, analyzed the Western Australian uh, Pregnancy Cohort, or the RAIN Cohort, of children born between 1989 and 1992. This, court w this cohort was originally designed to examine the effects of pregnancy ultrasounds on neurodevelopment. Of the 2,608 children assessed in follow-up, 321 were exposed to anesthesia before the age of three. I think this is important. It shows that 11% of children in this particular cohort had general anesthesia before the age of three. In addition, he found that there was an increased adjust relative risk ratio for disability in language and cognition, which persisted even after a single exposure to anesthesia. However, there are several studies that show that there's no association between early anesthesia exposure and later learning difficulties. 
In the Netherlands, a study looking at identical twins found that twin pairs, in which only one of the twins had general anesthesia, both had lower neurocognitive scores compared to twin pairs in which neither twin had a general anesthetic exposure. So it appears that it wasn't the general anesthetic exposure that was the cause of their learning difficulties. A large cohort study from Denmark found no evidence that children who had inguinal hernia surgery as infants did worse on national achievements examinations done at age 16. However, among the children who were unable to take the examination, i.e. those that they considered non-attainers, there was a higher percentage of those children who did have inguinal hernia surgery. So the studies are provocative but confusing. How many of those studies, aside from the Danish study of identical twins, adequately controlled for exposure to general anesthesia versus having a medical problem such as lingual hernia which required hospitalization and interference with normal development. Right, so you bring up a great point. A lot of these studies have a lot of limitations. Um, I'm gonna go into some of the just limitations of epidemiologic studies. These databases were almost always developed retrospectively and thus there are method methodologic difficulties. In the Minnesota study, for example, there's an assumption that the population cohort is stable. Patients don't uh, move in and out of that area. However, it's very possible that healthy children were uh, moved from the county and sicker children stayed behind with their families in order to be close to tertiary care facilities. Studies derived from Medicaid databases can have inaccurate billing codes. Another limitation is that general anesthetics change with time. The most commonly used anesthetic given to children around the time of the Minnesota study was halothane, and pulse oximetry was not available. We don't know exactly what the anesthetics that were given in during the Minnesota study because the anesthetic records weren't available. So it's difficult to compare the findings of the Minnesota study with, those, uh, with the risks that our children would have undergoing modern general anesthetics. And that's just limitations, that's not confounders. I'd like to talk just a little bit about some of the possible confounders and that's what you were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, the most common confounders are the effects of surgery and illness on neurocognition. Many of the children who have had general anesthesia at a young age are ill with either acute or chronic illnesses. Prematurity, sepsis, chronic ventilation, pain, unstable hemodynamics, chromosomal abnormalities, and congenital defects are all risk factors for later neurocognitive problems. And it's almost impossible to control for all these factors when doing large cohort studies. We don't even have the anesthetic records from the Minnesota study, never mind the past medical history of these children. The effects of surgery are not well studied in children. However, in adults, surgery causes inflammation, and this inflammation is associated with postoperative neurocognitive dysfunction. So even if these children were healthy to begin with, it's possible the surgery alone could cause some neurocognitive problems. Finally, we, it's possible that the anesthetic factors such as intraoperative hypotension, hypocarbia, hyperthermia, hypoxia or hyperoxia, as well as hypoglycemia, may confound the relationship between anesthetic neurotoxicity and neurocognitive outcomes. So what you're saying is it may not be the neurotoxicity of anesthetics so much as the way the anesthetics were used and the impacts they may have had on uh, circulation, blood oxygenation, and other things which could cause some of the problems. Absolutely, and I think it's something that we really need to study carefully. So. Those criticisms replied 
apply generally to all of the historical cohort studies that have been published to date. Is that true? True. Even some, it, it applies to even some of the prospective studies. Thank you, Muriel. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Dr. Charles Nelson has joined us for our discussion of potential neuroanesthetic toxicity in the developing brain. Dr. Nelson is professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and director of research in the developmental medicine program at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Nelson, what can you tell us about the stage of brain development and its vulnerabilities to potential anesthetic neurotoxicity? So brain development essentially begins just a few weeks after birth, and as it moves through the prenatal period and leads then into the postnatal period, there are two major changes that are occurring. The formation of synapses, the connection among neurons, and what a process called myelination where we're laying down fatty beds that cover some aspects of neurons and speeds impulses. Both this process of connecting neurons together and making them work more efficiently are very vulnerable to experiential and environmental perturbations, including good things and bad things like neuro, you know, neurotoxins. To what extent does uh, this term apoptosis, the, the death of neurons, how, how does that work in the developing brain in the first three years of life? So apoptosis, which is often referred to as programmed cell death, is a normative process. We estimate that 40 to 60 percent of all neurons that are born prenatally will eventually just disappear. But what we're concerned about is when neurotoxicity occurs, there can be an error in apoptosis, meaning that too many neurons are killed, or similarly, too many connections are retracted. The brain starts to wire inherently, even without input, and then it waits for confirmation from the environment. If there's a toxin coming in, it can break some of those connections that otherwise would have been retained. So we're concerned about the loss of brain cells and the loss of connections. Is there some period between birth at term and three years of age where you think for the human infant, this vulnerability to apoptosis and uh, anesthetic neurotoxin might be at its peak? Yes. We, we often think that the first few years of life represent what we call a critical period for different aspects of brain development. And what we mean by that is that many aspects of brain development are being driven by experience, and the brain expects certain experiences to occur during certain points in development, those first three years. So if an experience fails to occur or the experience that occurs is somehow unusual, such as um, a neurotoxic effect, then the brain is particularly vulnerable, more so than probably at any other point in the lifespan, So, which is why I think the topic we're discussing today is really essential because anesthesia in those first three years can have a very different effect on the brain than at the age of 10 or at the age of 15. Because the experimental evidence in animals has suggested that uh, a number of anesthetic agents, indeed most anesthetic agents, can uh, trigger apoptosis, inappropriate apoptosis. Um, I think uh, caregivers and parents are very concerned about the impact that this could have on later cognitive development. Can you give us an, an idea of what you know of how great that impact would be compared to other uh, potential uh, an interruption of normal development? Sure. I think that one thing that parents should be reassured about is the developing brain is remarkably malleable and plastic, and so that even when something bad happens to it, it does a pretty good job of recovering. Now, one of the things that influences that is how long this has gone on. So, for example, a baby under deep anesthesia for a month 
is that that's a very different scenario than a baby under anesthesia for two hours for a more simple procedure. The second thing is that one of the things that influences the baby's ability to rebound or to recover from these so-called insults is the environment they're going home to. So we know that in rodent models, rats exposed to lead, rats exposed to alcohol prenatally, if they're reared in enriched environments, suffer many fewer side effects. So the encouraging thing here, I think, is that a single exposure to a neurotoxic event is unlikely to have any long-lasting consequences, even if it initially leads to alterations in the number of brain cells or the number of connections simply because the brain usually does a good job of rebounding. So if there are 20 cells in a circuit and five of them have been uh, died because of this exposure, other neurons will step up and take the place of those five. So parents could have a, a very positive impact uh, against mitigating any neurotoxic effect of a a brief general anesthetic. Precisely. If we if we look at this literature more broadly of exposure to stressful events, and let's include anesthesia as a potentially stressful events, babies who have buffering relationships tend to do much better than those who do not. And so I think the take-home message would be to send these parents home with their baby with instructions about all the things they need to do to be supportive for their baby. And that it would include, of course, trying to worry very little about them, which is, of course, not so easy when their baby's just had surgery. So there's been a lot of concern in the press and in the, inside the profession about general anesthesia and general anesthetic exposure. I think those of us who have a lot of experience in pediatric intensive care are much more concerned about children who are on ventilators and who are sedated for weeks and months. So from as a developmental um, medicine specialist, can you give us a, a, your level of concern about a brief general anesthetic versus a month of being in an ICU on a ventilator and sedated. Yeah, I, I share that concern. So take a child on ECMO, for example, or take a child who is having a trachea rebuilt and they're on, uh, they're, you know, they're sedated for long periods of time. I think that we need to pay very close attention to those babies because the prolonged nature of the anesthesia greatly elevates the risk that there could be harm done. Now, that said, we currently don't have the ability to detect subtle changes in brain development in the living brain, in the living human brain. Animal models, much easier. But for people like me who do things like electrophysiology or MRIs, we, don't, we may not be able to detect subtle things that happen over a month of exposure to anesthesia. It may well be the case that these effects are what we call sleeper effects. We don't see their effects until three or four or five years later. And if, if children have some genetic abnormalities or uh, congenital birth defects that might involve the brain. They also are frequently those who have repeated anesthetics for uh, reconstructive procedures in for orthopedics or other areas. Right. right. So an example of that would be kids with cardiac defects where perhaps uh, oxygenating tissue has already been compromised to some degree. And uh, I think that um, in terms of underlying genetic defects, my concern there would be defects that lead to things like microcephaly, small brain. Because if the brain has already been compromised in some way, then adding insult to injury will compound and make the problem worse. So for the parents out there, Dr. Nelson, uh, what can you tell them uh, in terms of what they should be concerned about if their child between birth and three years of age is going to have a, a general anesthetic of one or two hours for a needed uh, surgical procedure. I think I would I would tell them to relax. I think that 
babies take care of themselves for the most part. Their brains are incredibly plastic in a very good way. And I think for a relatively short procedure for something like that, I think the parents should feel reassured that they probably don't have anything to worry about. And what can they do to mitigate any potential toxicity that might occur? I think one thing is, of course, is to follow their doctor's orders when they get the baby home to make sure that they're doing all the things they're supposed to do. But the second, I think, is to just be there for their baby. I think the argument we want to make is that mom or dad needs to make an investment in the child. And so if the child's come home from the hospital, besides following orders, they want to be particularly sensitive to the baby's needs. So if they're, if they're particularly cranky, if they're, if they're hungrier than usual or not as hungry as usual, just be mindful of those things and try to attend to those things. Dr. Nelson, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Laszlov Wutkis from the University of Geneva to our World Shared Practice Forum on Neurodevelopmental Effects of General Anesthetics. Dr. Wutzkitz is a chief of pediatric anesthesia at the University of Geneva. He's a principal investigator in the research unit there and is a senior lecturer in the medical school. So we'll start with the first question, which is how did we discover that anesthetic agents can induce neuroapoptosis in the developing brain? Uh, so I think it's a very important question and very important issue to know about this because in contrast uh, when we talk about the anesthesia neurotoxicity field, especially when we try to bring it into clinical practice, it's very important to realize that we didn't find ourselves with an overt clinical problem, a clinical phenotype, but it all came from basic science research. So the story behind was that there were experimental investigations on fetal alcohol syndrome. And uh, we know that alcohol acts on GABAergic and NMDA receptors. And in the basic science research regarding fetal alcohol syndrome, they found in seven-day-old animals, neither before nor after during development, an important apoptotic response. And this was taken up by some anesthesiologists working in a basic science lab and tried to imply a, an anesthesia regimen and such as they found in, um, in the alcohol, um, um, fetal alcohol syndrome, they have found that uh, anesthetics at certain stages of development in, 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 in young rodents can induce uh, neuroapoptosis. Does, does neurotoxicity uh, of anesthetic agents, is it present in all species? Well, this is present, uh, now we know that it's present from, uh, from the earthworm till higher order monkeys, higher order primates, non-human primates. It might be, of course, present. There is no reason to think that it cannot be present in humans, but of course, uh, we, we cannot prove this um, clinically or experimentally. So what is the extent of anesthesia-induced uh, neuroapoptosis? So this is also something very important to realize that it's very, very low. So despite the fact that people are considering anesthetics-induced neuropoptosis huge and consider this as potentially the basis of, of potential learning deficits in, uh, in rodents or even in higher order species, if you uh, take a look at the recent literature taking advantage of, of, of very precise um, stereological techniques, you can see that it's way less than 1% of all neurons who are involved. So this is a very, very tiny amount of neurons those undergo apoptosis uh, due to anesthesia exposure. So if it's only a tiny amount, what's the functional relevance 
of anesthesia-induced neuroapoptosis for young children under the age of two years facing a, a single anesthetic. So that's very difficult to, to draw a functional consequence based on your neuroapoptosis because um, for, for, for several reasons. One is that neuroapoptosis is, is, is um, at least in rodents, it, it occurs in a developmental stage that if you extrapolate to human development, it, it, it corresponds to approximately midterm pregnancy. So if we talk about the neuroapoptosis, then if we want to give to it a translational relevance, we could say that it, it's relevant maybe to very premature babies and not, definitely not for the first few years of postnatal life. On top of that, there is no, no experimental evidence saying that, uh, that the neuroapoptosis is the cause of the learning deficits found even in, in rodents. And especially we now have some evidence showing that neuroapoptosis has nothing to do or little to do with the subsequent learning deficits. There are experimental data showing that, for example, exposing seven-day-old young red pups to anesthesia induces apoptotic response both in males and females, but you can only find um, uh, altered developmental pattern, altered behavior in, uh, in, in males and not in females, which is quite suggestive that it might not be directly the apoptotic response that is involved. So I'll put you on the spot here. Let's assume you have a six-month-old child of your own who needs a, uh, a procedure under general anesthesia. Um, would you have any concerns about having your six-month-old child undergo a, a relatively brief general anesthetic for, a, say, an inguinal hernia repair? Well, it's the, the basic question is, does he need it? If he needs it, I wouldn't have any concern because uh, I think that at our current stage of understanding, uh, we do not have any clinical phenotype of anesthesia-induced neurotoxicity. On the other hand, we know that if we will, um, if we will postpone this surgery, this child can be exposed to the to danger of, of, of uh, hernia strangulation or, or many other things. So, in general, if there is a, a reason to do surgery, if there is a real reason to do surgery in these, uh, in these infants or, or small children, I have no, no problem to, to, to conduct the anesthesia and, uh, and analgesia in these, in these children. Thank you. I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Saul Soriano uh, to our World Shared Practices Forum on the, uh, the effects of anesthetics on neurotoxicity in the developing brain. Dr. Soriano is a professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he's the director of our neuroanesthesia program at Children's Hospital Boston. And he's also the director of our laboratory, uh, which is focused on investigating the effects of general anesthesia on brain development in experimental animals. And Dr. Soriano has extensive experience with looking at these uh, laboratory effects of anesthesia drugs on developing brains in various animal models. So can you outline some of the specific histological and biochemical effects of these uh, anesthetics on the developing brain? 
Well, with these previous studies, I showed that the, the, the neurons themselves, as well as some of the accompanying glial cells, actually die from exposure to these anesthetic drugs. Again, from a prolonged uh, duration of, a pro, uh, of exposure, as well as extremely high doses. But um, by and large, what you see is this affects the entire lifespan of, 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 of a being. You can see that it affects neurulation, neuronal proliferation, that is the dividing cells, migration, synaptogenesis, that's where these neurons actually form neurological, neural uh, connections with each other, and myelination uh, from, from conception all the way to adulthood. Now keep in mind that these neurons are constantly, there's a subpopulation of neurons that are constantly dividing in, in the developing brain that holds true up to adults. And this is where learning occurs, particularly in the hippocampus. As these neurons divide through neurogenesis, there's an impact with these anesthetic drugs. It, it halts neurogenesis. And as they mature and, and form a distinct uh, histological patterns, that is also impacted by, by anesthetic drugs. And finally, synaptogenesis, that's the that's the process where these neurons actually crosstalk. That again can be impaired by exposure to anesthetic drugs. Now, for example, if you look at some neurons that we've cultured in our laboratories here at Boston Children's Hospital, you can see on the left side, control neurons are bathed in um, growth medium. However, if you add an anesthetic drug such as ketamine, you can see that these neurons actually die. And if you actually look closely to it, some of the dendrites and the axons are actually stunted in growth, thereby showing that there is a decrement in their, their development. Furthermore, if you allow to uh, look at the varying concentration of the drug, there is a dose and concentration dependent effect. Not only for ketamine, which is sort of the, the prototypical toxic drug, but also dexmedetomidine, which has been purported to be so-called the safe anesthetic drug. Even at, at low doses, which are clinically used, we do not see any cell death. However, if you push those doses at higher concentrations, you can see there's a very replicable uh, pattern of cell death that approaches that what you see with ketamine. And finally, it depends on the age of, of the neurons themselves. Uh, it's been well known that uh, immature neurons, when exposed to an anesthetic drugs, actually get activated or hyperpolarized. This leads to excitotoxic cell death. And there's this developmental switch of the, of the chloride channel that occurs right around the second or third month of the rodent's age. And in humans, that's around the first six months of age. You can see that this development switch switches over from um, a chloride channel that is actually excitatory to one that is inhibitory. So when you get, uh, the implication here is when you give these anesthetic drugs, such as the volatile agents, sevoflurane, perhaps midazolam, uh, these will may actually cause these cells to become hyperactive. And then as the cell matures, these same drugs, given in the same doses, will cause the cell to, to be senescent and to, to, to be hypopolarized. Noxious stimulation. There's a reason why we give uh, general anesthesia to patients, is to, to blunt the, the effect of this surgical stimulus. And in fact, when we actually had a noxious stimulus, while we apply these anesthetic drugs, we were able to decrease, not completely re, uh, remove the increases in, uh, in cell death, but we were able to decrease the response to, to uh, the ketamine uh, uh, administration. So, so anesthesia, in the absence of pain and surgery, uh, produces a much more extreme uh, response in terms exactly. of neurotoxicity, but when the anesthesia is given to counteract pain, 
much of that seems to go away. So this whole animal, this whole field of animal data and the whole body of work may be setting up an artificial situation which induces neurotoxicity from these agents uh, because it's not nearly the same model. And again, in an in a artificial laboratory setting, we give a fixed dose of anesthetic drugs to try to produce the maximal effect that we're trying to find. Whereas in the operating room, or in the ICU for that matter, we actually dose and moderate the amount of anesthetics we use this to correspond to the level of, and severity of the surgical response as well as, as other, other um, stress-producing um, uh, stimuli uh, that occur. So when you're an, an infant or a child is in the operating room, we're monitoring blood pressure, we're monitoring their oxygen saturation, that is how much oxygen they're actually getting, and also the amount of carbon dioxide. I think these are the real, real issues that we have to, uh, uh, we have to advocate for is the uh, train pediatric anesthesiologists are, are there to, to assure the fact that um, the physiologic uh, well-being of the child is being carried out throughout the surgical as well as the intensive care and, and recovery period. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to welcome Dr. Charles Birdie to this World Shared Practices Forum. Uh, Dr. Birdie is the t chief of the Division of Pain Medicine in the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. He's professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and I think considered a worldwide expert on pain and the treatment of pain in the pediatric age group. Uh, Chuck, what do we know about the neurotoxic effects of current anesthetics that suggest uh, ways that we can improve management or, or reduce the risks of, of management? There's research at Boston Children's and at other centers, including work you've been involved in, that suggests that a combination of deep anesthesia, low blood pressure, low carbon dioxide is worse for the brain than any one of those alone. So I think increasingly pediatric anesthesiologists are trying to avoid low blood pressure. We know that general anesthesia by itself lowers blood pressure, and so I think there's a greater vigilance to maintaining blood pressure in an, in an acceptable range during anesthesia in infants and young children. Another point is that the regulation of blood flow to the brain is immature, and we're studying more about how to do things to maintain brain blood flow in the face of changes in blood pressure in infants under anesthesia. I think, so many consequences of that. Pediatric anesthesiologists are being careful about modulating anesthetic depth, about avoiding low blood pressure. One of the things that's changed in the last 30 years is the development of technologies that allow you to monitor blood pressure, cardiac activity, and ventilation continuously and non-invasively. There's also current research on using non-invasive monitors of brain function, using EEG and near-infrared spectroscopy to get a better handle on the state of the brain during anesthesia and to understand better what range of blood pressure would be optimal for anesthetized infants. Can you outline some of the alternative approaches to general anesthesia or different anesthetics that might mitigate potential adverse uh, neurocognitive effects of general anesthetics? Sure. So there's a, number, uh, there's a number of approaches. One of the approaches used very commonly is to use regional anesthesia 
using local anesthetics along with lighter planes of general anesthesia. So the infant or child is still asleep, but with much lower doses. Simply put, if you numb the part of the body having surgery, you need far less to keep a child asleep than if the nervous system is exposed to the afferent input from the surgical field. Combining regional and general approaches is something we use very widely at Boston Children's. Our anesthesiologists have become experts in the use of ultrasound to guide where you perform injections so that numbing parts of the body with infiltration, with peripheral nerve blocks, with caudal and other approaches to the epidural space has become widespread practice at major pediatric centers worldwide. A group of us uh, conduct research on local anesthetic mechanisms and pharmacology in infants and children. And there's really been a 25-year trajectory of improving how we use local anesthetics in children. One of the parts of that that's done at Boston Children's is a research program on developing new local anesthetics that seem to be both safer on the heart and could permit both pain relief during surgery as well as period of pain relief for several days after surgery. That's an area of our investigation. Uh, could you give some examples of the way these techniques are used uh, for local anesthesia in infants undergoing surgery? What sort of cases are amenable to this? Sure. So it, it's really a wide range of ca cases for surgeries really from the neck downward. Simple example would be a circumcision where either the surgeon or urologist would inject at the base of the penis to numb it, something called a dorsal penile block, or the anesthesiologist would inject at the low end of the epidural space called a caudal block that numbs the area of surgery so that uh, infant or toddler would need just a light amount of general anesthesia. For major surgeries in the arms and legs, what are called peripheral nerve or plexus blocks, so that if you're operating on the arm, that numbing the brachial plexus using ultrasound guidance is a way of providing pain relief and a component of anesthesia for that procedure. For major operations in the chest and abdomen, we use a combination of peripheral blocks and epidural catheters. Um, traditionally, epidural catheters were placed blindly. There's now ways of using ultrasound, nerve stimulation, and other approaches to see where you're going. A technique called paravertebral analgesia, placing a catheter right next to the spine and infusing to numb the nerves of the intercostal nerves along the chest wall is used with increasing frequency for kids having major chest surgery. It requires ultrasound guidance and learning how to modify technique for infants, but we think it's a very important approach to kids having surgery on the chest and particularly groups of kids who have repeated chest surgeries. There's a small number of operations where kids have regional as the sole anesthetic. For hernia repairs and some other operations, very young infants often get a spinal anesthetic, and when they are numb from that, they seem to be very comfortable and relaxed and tolerate surgery without requirement for general anesthesia, but that's really a small percentage of operations. Uh, could you elaborate on using pain medications such as, such as opioids or dexmedetomidine to reduce inhaled anesthetic requirements and comment on whether those agents are potentially protective 
or uh, how they would interact with uh, inhaled anesthetic requirements. I think it, these are really very important approaches. And just to say that the work on opioids as components of anesthesia started with your work and work uh, by your, you and your colleagues really many years ago, showing that opioid-based approaches were an ideal way for infants having cardiac surgeries, that they provide very excellent cardiovascular stability, that they blunt hormonal and metabolic stress responses and autonomic responses. In infant animal studies, in some of them using opioids and certainly using the alpha-2 agonist dexmedetomidine might be less harmful than the traditional inhalation anesthetics. In some circumstances, dexmedetomidine has had some neuroprotective effects. There's a multinational group now studying the combined use of opioids and dexmedetomidine to provide a state of general anesthesia for kids having types of surgeries where you can numb the operative field with local anesthesia but use opioid and dexmedetomidine to maintain the child asleep. It's also been shown for adults and for children that these medications dramatically reduce the amount of general anesthetics, meaning vapor type anesthetics required to make a child either unconscious or not responsive to surgery. So I think using them in conjunction with lower amounts of existing drugs is a very attractive approach and something that's used more and more by pediatric anesthesiologists. Are there other new approaches on the horizon? What else could, could we do? So there's active investigation about that in laboratories around the world. There's a group of researchers in England and more recently in North America who've been studying the inert gas xenon both for brain protection in critically ill neonates. They've been studying it in neonates with hypoxic ischemic brain injury, but also studying it as an approach to general anesthesia. In infant animal models, xenon appears very benign in terms of its effects on the brain. It's, it's undergoing studies. It's not yet available for general anesthetic use in the US, but it's being actively studied, and it's undergoing clinical trials at present in adults, and we hope soon in children. We don't know yet if it will be better tolerated and have milder neurodevelopmental effects, but there's reason for hope for that based on the animal studies. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks. I want to welcome Dr. Lynn Ferrari to our discussion group and ask her some specific questions about what parents should be concerned about with a young child undergoing a general anesthetic. Dr. Ferrari is the director of the surgical home and preoperative clinic at Boston Children's Hospital. Lynn, uh, is anesthesia general anesthesia going to impair a child's subsequent uh, intelligence or neurocognitive functioning if they receive that anesthesia before age three or four? Oh, so that's a very interesting question, a question that um, certainly many parents would, would be asking given what we have heard in the media. Um, but really what is very, very important is to look at what the risk benefit to the child having the procedure is. Um, what would be the risk of not doing a procedure? What would be the risk of not having the anesthetic um, weighed against an uncertain risk of an abnormality um, that is uncertain uh, with an anesthetic? 
Um, so what I would specifically say to a parent that asked me was absolutely not at this point. We couldn't say anything specific or conclusive about damage um, to your child if they needed to have an anesthetic for a, a surgical procedure. Thank you. Dr. McCann, you're an expert on prospective human studies and running the, the, the primary international study. How long is it going to be before we have real information about whether it's safe or not? Okay, well for our particular study, um, the two-year follow-ups from our children who had um, hernia surgery at a very, very young age and have come back at age two um, for neurodevelopmental testing, that should be out within a year. And then we're also going to follow our children till, they're, um, till age five. So it still is going to take some time before we actually have the answer to this question of at least what the uh, impact is of a short anesthetic, an anesthetic less than an hour and a half. Dr. Soriano, you're an expert in the animal experimentation and anesthetic neurotoxicity in the developing brain. Uh, do you think those animal data that you're developing and others apply to the human situation? Well, it, it certainly is uh, interesting to see that there is an impact of these anesthetic drugs on the development of the, of the neurons themselves. Uh, when you design these studies, you try to show what the impact of these anesthetics are on first neurogenesis, neuron development, sprouting, as well as synaptic uh, strengthening. And these are different factors that occur throughout the lifespan of, of an individual. So there are indeed um, uh, problems with these anesthetic drugs in the, develop, the developing uh, brain. However, these are extreme conditions where we try to show what the worst possible outcome is with exposure to these various anesthetic drugs. In animals? In animals and cell cultures as well. So not, whole animals and cells. I think it's... It's important to point out that in Dr. Soriano's studies and in studies of other investigators, those harms in the animal studies were very dependent on both the duration of exposure and the depth of exposure. One of the changes we've made is to try to find anesthetic approaches where we keep the depth of anesthesia lighter than in some of those animal experiments and techniques including using regional anesthesia, using supplemental analgesics to lighten the vapor exposure seems in the animal studies to mitigate those effects on neurogenesis. So, so let's go back to the problem with, of the parents. So Lynn, should the parents postpone the operation? Right. So as we just have heard from all of these comments, so if you ask the question, is the anesthetic going to harm my child? We know that these are animal studies. We know that they're extreme conditions. We know that there's potential, but we don't really have any evidence to support the fact that there is um, specific injury that might occur. So should you cancel the operation? Um, certainly, if you have an emergency procedure, we're not going to, there is no question that you wouldn't want to cancel um, a child who has acute appendicitis, a child who falls and needs a fracture fixed. Um, the risk of not attending to that is far greater than any theoretic risk we would have of, an, of a general anesthetic. Um, if you take elective surgery, so if you take a real common one, uh, would be a child having myringotomy in tubes. So those children are usually under a year of age. They have um, fluid in their ears. They may have decreased hearing. That may impair speech development. That may impair learning. Um, is it emergent? No, it's not emergent. But what would be the risk to that child? What would be the detrimental effect to that child of not doing the ear tubes, not having the best hearing, not having the best language development? Weigh that against 
um, an indefinite and nonspecific potential risk. If it were my child, I would absolutely go ahead. And, and we, a very brief anesthetic, And too. it's a very brief anesthetic. So what I would say to parents would be, given the information that we have, given the risk of not doing a procedure, if it were my child, what would I do? And I would certainly say right now, for something that was deemed necessary, I would not um, withhold an anesthetic uh, for a procedure that we thought was actually important to the child's health or development in general. So Dr. Soriano, you're a parent. Yes. You have a three-year-old who's having repeated ear infections, isn't hearing as well as they should. Uh, would you take the risk of having a brief general anesthetic to get the hearing restored and get the benefits of better hearing and better language development? Or you, would you not want to go forward with this because of the theoretical concerns about neurotoxicity of general anesthetics in a three-year-old? Well, as someone who's... It's done, your child now. Oh, it's my, my child. And as, and as someone who's done some of the, the work in the laboratory, both in cell culture and in, in the rats, there's, there, is a, 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 there is certainly a concern for this, but it's so different in a, in a, in a, in a human child. Um, the risk of not doing the, the surgery itself will impede, as you said, language development and hearing and, and subsequent learning development. And again, this is probably one of the, the major problems with some of the retrospective studies uh, that have been published out there and been often quoted in the public. It says many of these patients who they're referencing their um, findings from had surgery in the ears, perhaps surgery in, in the, the palate as well. And these have been known to impair learning uh, uh, pro uh, problems as well. Language, Language development. That's right. So um, indeed, I would, I would, I would not even think about postponing surgery and and go ahead with it. Okay. So, Dr. McCann, you're a parent, yes. a mother. I put the same question to you. I would definitely. Um, I mean, you have to consider there may be some bias here. I'm an anesthesiologist, and so I think anesthesia in general is a good thing. Um, but I think you could consider if you have a child that's not able to hear or not able to speak well because they have a cleft palate or not able to walk well because they have a congenital problem with their leg, that that creates a deprived environment for them. And if we go back to the animal studies, animals in deprived environments don't develop as well. And they actually, animals exposed to anesthesia, which have a great environment, do better. So I, I think I would uh, go ahead with what I would consider all necessary surgery for my children. Dr. Ferrari, what are the, the downsides or, or the upsides of anesthesia versus no anesthesia? We've all touched on that, but could you be a little bit more specific? Are there any other potential downsides of having general anesthesia? Um, really, I, 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 Given what we know, I would not say that at this point there is any uh, real specific um, downside, um, referring to what Dr. McCann said. Um, in, if you're not going to have these surgeries, um, there really is a downside to that. Um, the other part of this that I think is important is what is this trauma of surgery? You know, we're, we're talking about anesthesia specifically, but there are multiple traumas, multiple stresses involved. So it's going to be very hard to determine and to call out in the studies either what we know already or going forward 
what is the surgical trauma, what is the effect of that stress versus what is the effect of the anesthetic. Um, again, upside or downside, I think there's a tremendous downside to not doing what's uh, surgically necessary. Um, I think that certainly we know that we can't do many of these procedures without anesthesia, uh, and we certainly know from studies that untreated <coughs> un, um, stress and pain has deleterious effects in and of itself. Um, so in summary, if it were for me, for my child, the advice that I would give is go ahead, um, provide the surgery, provide the anesthesia. Uh, we don't have specific evidence to um, withhold that at this point. Okay, so we've, so we've decided to go ahead with the well, I'd like, like to make one point though, uh, just to add to your, your first point. There are some downsides with putting someone asleep with anesthesia. It can, you can, they can lose their airway and not there breathe properly. They sure. not get enough oxygen. We may be causing their blood pressure to go lower than possible. That's why it's important to have a fully trained and experienced pediatric anesthesiologist manage your, your, your child. If I could make a follow-on point to that, many of the most widely quoted retrospective studies involved an era where anesthetics were given to children in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, a few of us are old enough to have undergone some of our training in that era. Anesthetics in that era were provided without pulse oximetry, without capnometry, with older agents such as halothane, and with, I think, far less appreciation for the impact of low blood pressure, low carbon dioxide concentrations on brain delivery of oxygen substrate. And I think pediatric anesthesiologists now are much more mindful of managing the anesthetic in a way to maintain normoxia, normocarbia, normotension, and to do things to account for neonatal and infant physiology in ways that were just being figured out in the late 70s. Are there some anesthetics that are safer than others uh, in, in this regard? Uh, and if so, what are they? Certainly in the laboratory, volatile agents uh, such as sevoflurane and isoflurane certainly have a several fold increase in this neurodegenerative or neuro, uh, uh, neuronal cell death uh, pattern compared to some of the injectable agents such as ketamine, propofol, dexmedetomidine for that matter. However, it, what's key here is the duration of exposure. These laboratory animals are exposed to volatile agents, uh, volatile gases, for for at least six hours before you actually see the, the lesion occurring uh, in, in them. So it's, it's, it's hard to, to really translate that into the human uh, patients. So it's laboratory evidence. Yes. It's theoretic at best as, as you would apply it to children. Mm -hmm. So there might be some laboratory evidence that inhalation agents might cause more damage, mm -hmm. but the way that we actually use them, to yes, your point, absolutely. with our new technologies, with our training, with our uh, very high rate of safety for general anesthesia in general for children, we really couldn't invoke mm -hmm. um, more harm for yeah. one agent versus another. So if, if I had an option, uh, is there a significant difference between general anesthesia versus regional anesthesia, if that'll work for my child? Dr. Birdie? Well, there's, there's human studies in progress, and so Dr. McCann and People around the world have this study in progress comparing regional to general prospectively for, for human infants uh, who underwent hernia repair. In the animal work from our group, Dr. Soriano and myself and our collaborators and work in London would suggest very good safety of regional anesthesia, that both peripheral nerve blocks, spinal anesthetics, caudal and other forms of epidural anesthesia 
seem not to produce apoptosis in the developing brain or spinal cord. And so the theme for us is often to combine regional anesthesia with a light plane of general anesthesia for many kinds of surgeries in infants and, and children of all ages. With regard to your question, th that is perfectly appropriate and wonderful, actually, when it's applicable, but it's not applicable to every for, uh, for to every, every surgical correct. type and Absolutely. for every uh, surgical location. Absolutely. So I think when there is the opportunity to have a regional anesthetic adjunct, that's certainly um, advisable. But again, for things in the head and neck, going back to ear tubes, that really isn't something that we could use regional anesthesia for. Correct. But by lighter plane of anesthesia, you mean that if you give a regional, that you will actually decrease the total dose of volatile agent or gases that you give, Correct. right? Correct, very yeah. much so. Absolutely. I think that's all we have. We've covered the field pretty thoroughly. Uh, thank you all very much. Thank, thank you. Recently, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, issued a drug safety communication on the potential for neurotoxicity leading to mild brain injury with anesthesia and sedation drugs in children. This communication stated to better inform the public about this potential risk, we are requiring warnings to be added to the labels of general anesthesia and sedation drugs. Based on preclinical reports, this FDA warning has certainly increased public awareness of the potential risk of anesthesia and sedation drugs. As noted by my colleagues on this Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum, this warning does not add additional information to our understanding of the issue. We believe that single exposures to a short general anesthetic during infancy and childhood, properly managed, do not result in any developmental impact or measurable neurotoxicity potentially leading to brain injury. The great majority of anesthetics in children fall into this category. However, this FDA warning does oblige clinicians to work together with the family to discuss and balance all the risks of anesthesia not just brain injury, with the benefits of the proposed procedure or diagnostic test for each child. Since anesthesia and sedation cannot be avoided in most cases, regardless of patient age, it is important to understand the complex mechanisms and effects involved and to develop strategies for avoiding or limiting potential injury. The FDA drug safety communication about anesthesia and sedation drugs underscores the need to pursue clinical investigations. Such clinical investigations in patients will permit more definitive conclusions about potential neurotoxicity and brain injury in humans of all ages, and to facilitate the establishment of clinically-based recommendations to guide anesthesia practice. Such investigations are actively underway in pediatric academic medical centers such as Boston Children's Hospital and other centers around the world. Evidence to date supports the position we have outlined in this panel that the vast majority of anesthetics are not harming the development of the child's brain. In situations where very prolonged or repeated exposures to anesthesia and sedation drugs occur in infants and young children, there is some cause for concern. However, even in such unusual cases, we know that proper management of anesthesia and sedation, as is being done in this institution and others, can minimize exposures to potentially neurotoxic drugs, 
increase use of safer drugs and techniques, and reduce risk of any impact on brain development. Thank you for watching. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.